Well, good morning. So good to be with you and to be on this incredible journey, a quest where we are going through the entire Bible. We're exploring God's story together. And hopefully you got a copy of the Quest Study Bible. If not, we would love to give you a copy of it. Hopefully uh, you've had a chance to grab a hold of the reading plan for the year. We have just finished in the first month the, the excerpts from the book of Genesis. It is not too late to start. You might be like, I, I didn't get started right at the beginning. That's okay. You can always go back and read Genesis. You've seen those movies where you started, you know, you kind of, you got to go watch the prequel later. It's totally fine to get to do that kind of stuff. So we'd love for you to jump on board with us as we kind of turn the page from Genesis into Exodus. And so we're moving from the book of Genesis, which is primarily about the covenants of God, kind of a more modern day word is the promise of God into a season when we are going to get to experience the freedom of God. And what we're going to experience is the Exodus story. I remember reading not too long ago that one of the biggest struggles that we have in America right now is that we have lost our story, is that we used to have a narrative that held us together and that we have lost that narrative. And that the narrative that primarily drove the United States of America for the last 400 years is primarily the story of the exodus out of Egypt. That that was our primary story. And sometimes we lived up to that story, sometimes we didn't live up to that story, but that that was our story. And what I hope we will do over the course of the next couple of weeks is refamiliarize ourselves with one of the most important stories of the Bible and our lives. And it begins in a really sad place with one of the saddest lines in the Old Testament where towards the beginning of Exodus it says this, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. A more literal translation is that a new king arose who did not know Joseph. And so Joseph, the one that Pharaoh tapped on the shoulder to be the prince of Egypt, Joseph, the one who was brought in in order to be able to save Egypt, Joseph, who even in the midst of his struggles rescued his family against all odds, Joseph becomes forgotten. And over the course of 400 years, they lose their story. They lose their history. 400 years is about the same time of the United States from the Mayflower to today. 400 years is the same period of time from the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, in a period of silence to the time of Jesus. 400 years, it's easy to forget. It's easy to lose your way. What we will discover in the Exodus story is that it's a story about freedom and that it is first in the first section. What we are looking at today is what are we freed from in the second half of the book of Exodus is what are we freed for? Because freedom is not just liberty from your bondage. Freedom is to be able to do what is right and good. And so in the Exodus story, what we're going to experience is the liberation that can only come from God. 
And so if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 13. You can use the one that you brought with you. We hope to create a culture where you're bringing your Bible to church so that you can take notes in it. And uh, remember what I say to the confirmation students when we give them, not the confirmation students, the fourth graders, when we give them their Bibles, Bibles that are falling apart belong to people who are not. Say that with me. Bibles that are falling apart belong to people who are not. And so we hope that you take it. It's a tactile thing where you read it, you discover it for yourself. And as you turn to Exodus chapter 13, we're going to start reading in the 17th verse. Will you give me just a few minutes to summarize the first 13 chapters? I'm glad you think that's funny because I think it's funny too. So a new king arises, and this king, interestingly enough, is not named in the Bible. The first couple of names in the Bible are not Moses. It's two women by the name of Shifra and Pua. And as you do your first reading this week, one of the things I want you to notice is that there are six remarkable women who changed the world. Don't miss the fact that the king of Egypt is not named, but these underdog, scrappy women are. And they changed history. The Pharaoh tries to bring them into a plan of not only slavery that has been established, but into genocide, and they refuse to comply. Moses is saved from the famous story of the basket, and Moses grows up from an act of compassion of Pharaoh's own daughter in the house of the king, and he grows to become a prince of Egypt. When you look at Moses' story, in the first 13 chapters, one of the things that you will discover is that Moses' story is held together by three acts of mercy and justice. The first time is that Moses intervenes when a taskmaster is abusing a slave, and Moses gets involved. The second time is, is when two slaves are going against one another, and Moses intervenes and gets involved. And then there's a third scene at a well where Shepherds are picking on some women, and Moses gets involved. Are you starting to notice a theme about Moses? And so Moses sticks up for what is right, but even in the midst of sticking up for what is right, sometimes Moses does what is wrong. In the midst of the experience, Moses murders in Doing so, he becomes exiled and finds himself in a long way away, away place called Midian. And he's given his life to becoming a shepherd. And he's minding his own business, and he thinks that that whole Egypt stuff is behind him. Until one day he turns aside, and there is a burning bush. And God irrevocably calls Moses. Moses has a lot of questions. God has a lot of patience. When you read that section, you're like, God is far more patient than I am. I would have told Moses, just do it, all right? But Moses has excuses. And we see in the first 13 chapters that Moses goes on this journey. He goes from orphan to prince, from prince to criminal, from criminal to refugee, and from refugee to ranch hand. And what God is about to do is to use one of the most unlikely figures to turn the world upside down. And so Moses, after a long time, goes back to Egypt. And as he goes back to Egypt, one of the things that we discover is that nobody is glad to see Moses. 
Pharaoh's clearly not glad to see Moses, but the Israelites aren't even glad to see Moses because they see him as a troublemaker. You recall the famous phrase, bricks without straw. In other words, when Moses shows up and starts confronting Pharaoh, things get worse before they get better. The longest section of the early part of Exodus, four chapters, is dedicated to what is known as the ten plagues, which is like a ten-round boxing match between the myths and the gods of Egypt and the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And each one of the different plagues, not going to get into the weeds with you, ties to a different false god or false narrative or myth about who God is. And so each one of those plagues is a contest. I love how Eugene Peterson describes it. He says it's like this. Blood, pow, frogs, pow, mosquitoes, pow, flies, pow, pestilence, pow, boils, pow, hail, pow, locusts, pow, darkness, pow, death, pow. Each blow further loosens the hold of that immense world-dominating Egyptian lie on the people until there was nothing left but a pile of rubble and garbage and corpses. At the end of those ten plagues comes the famous experience of the Passover, the death of the firstborn. And you and I, and I did for the longest time, thought the ten plagues were about a judgment on Egypt for its sin. But the phrase that repeats over and over again in the ten plagues is that you may know. In other words, in Exodus 7 through 11, each of those different contests is so that we may know who God really is. And so Israel is saved from the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. They eat bitter herbs to remind them of the pain of their slavery. They eat unleavened bread to remind them that at a minute's notice, God may call them to go. And eventually, Pharaoh lets them go. Exodus chapter 13. Starting in the 17th verse, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that way was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. And so God led the people around by the desert road towards what sea? The Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt and ready for battle. I want to begin by showing you a map of what this route might have been like. In this wrap, which is really small, the Mediterranean Sea is up towards the top. If you're in your Quest Bible, you've got one there. The way of the Philistines, the way that would have made the most sense, the shortest route would have been up north along the edge of the coast, but it was dominated by the Egyptians and by the Philistines. There was no way for Israel to go that way without fighting the whole way. And they don't go that way. They end up going towards the south and wandering in the wilderness for a while. Now, if you'll notice in your Bibles, at least in the Quest Study Bible, the modern NIV and other translations, I had you highlight the phrase, the Red Sea. 
is actually a, a mistranslation, possibly, of what sea is there. We don't actually know what body of knowledge. It was either the Red Sea, or as you see in the footnote down at the bottom, the Sea of Reeds, or it could be translated as the end sea. In other words, a sea where their backs were at the end, where they were against the wall. We don't actually know which body of water it was, but there has been the history of the tradition of passing it down because of a mistranslation that was done in the Septuagint. If you're like, man, that's a lot of intel, you can come to the Thursday lunch and learn, I'll give you more. If you're like, thanks pastor, that's good, I've got enough. Just know that it was a really big body of water but we don't know exactly where it was. And then this is what happens next. This is Exodus chapter 14, starting in the fifth verse. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. In other words, they hadn't changed their hearts, but they changed their minds. They changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. And so he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all of the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea." One of the things that you're going to notice is that in the book of Exodus, they emphasize the military and technological superiority of Pharaoh. Over and over again, they talk about the chariots and the horses, and the horses and the chariots, and that's going to come up later in another part of the story. This is going to be a slaughter. Pharaoh has come to the point where he has said, serve me or die. And that is the choice. That we can serve the false gods of this world. And if we don't serve them, they will try to destroy us. Verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. And there were the Egyptians marching after them, and they were terrified and cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us into the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Let me ask if this is a little bit of revisionist history when they were slaves in Egypt. Do you think they really said to Moses, leave us alone, we'd rather serve the Egyptians than be free? No, this is, this is when the fear and the heat gets turned up. They start to rewrite history. We have an incredible tendency to do this. And it's the fear that's talking. And they start to take things out on Moses. And in the midst of their fear, God meets them. Verse 13, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. 
I want you to circle, to underline, to imprint on your heart the phrase, the Lord will fight for you. Yes, there are some battles that you are called to fight. But there are some battles that God will fight for you. When your back is against the wall and there's no way to go, God will make a way where there seems to be no way. And so here we have Moses standing on the edge of this this sea, this lake, this large body of water, whatever it is. And with a strong wind and with Moses' staff, the seas are parted. And the Israelites are able to walk on dry land. And Pharaoh and his chariots and all of his superior technology and power, they're bearing down on them. And yet when they get safely to the other side, the horses and the chariots are swallowed up by the sea. If you read verses 21 through 31 later, one of the things that you'll notice is that this promise that the Lord will fight for you is absolutely true. Because one of the things that you will notice in this is that it is the Lord who drove the sea back. It is the Lord who threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. It is the Lord who jammed the wheels of the chariots. It is the Lord who threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. It is the Lord that saved Israel that day. Who's the primary actor in this story? It's the Lord. It's God. This is God doing for them what they could not do for themselves. And here's something really interesting. Here we are all the way to the middle of the book of Exodus. And what we experience for the first time in this moment is the first song in the Bible. Did you notice that the first song in the Bible is in reference to the salvation of God's people and their liberation from bondage? And this is how the song starts. Do you want me to sing it for you or do you want me to just read it? The choir says, sing it. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly both horse and driver. He is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The first song is a song of praise for their salvation. And we need to be reminded that God has given us a history, a story, He has given us a song, and he's given us a meal, a story, a song, and a meal that constantly remind us of our salvation. Eight years ago, I went with a small group of people from our church in Southern California to this place. This is the Tenderloin District in San Francisco. It's the highest density of people living in the entire state. In the midst of it, there is a population of around 10,000 homeless. In the midst of it, there are incredible addictions to drugs, 
horrific crime. And while we were there, a small group of us standing on the outside of this, of one of 487 different low-income housing units, we're about to walk inside with some food, with some Bibles, with some water, and a listening ear to knock on doors from the most drug-ridden, crime-ridden part of the state of California. The smells, the sights, the despair, the hunger, the emptiness, the hopelessness. I remember sitting on the edge of a chair as a woman just poured out her heart and begged me for prayer. My friends, most of us listening online or in this room right now, we live very comfortable lives. And if we're not careful, we can forget our story, our history. A history that we have all been slaves to sin. And we can forget that there's real evil out there. And that you and I, if we're not careful, construct little lives to where we don't think that we need salvation anymore. But if you were willing to walk in places that you don't normally walk, and to look into eyes that you normally turn away, you will realize that the bubble will pop and you will see what we're really up against, not just out there, but in here. I know the wickedness and the capacity of a distorted heart. And I'll bet in your more honest moments, so do you. The sea rescue is our story because we need to be saved. And maybe you've forgotten the story. Through the years of the prosperity and the health, Maybe you forget that there's a God who has fought for you. And because of the blood of the lamb has paid a price for you. And that because of his unfailing love, his steadfast faithfulness, he still rescues. At the heart of what we do and are, is a people of rescue. And if we're not careful, we can think a little bit of education here, a little bit of economics here, a little bit of political reform here, 
and all of our problems would go away. I'm here to tell you, no. We need a Savior. It was true for the Israelites, and it's still true for us today. Will you walk through the waters of your baptism? Moses, in Hebrew, Moshe, means to be drawn out of the water. In your baptism, that's who you are. When Danica and Ashby leave the house, now that they can both drive, that's a regular occurrence. Why stay with your parents when you have wheels and you can go? Kelly and I will often look at them and our parting word is not goodbye. It's remember your baptism. That's often met with a teenage eye roll. But I mean it. Remember your baptism. Remember who you are. Remember that you've been drawn out of the water. That you've been saved. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, your freedom is just as needed today as it was 3,500 years ago in Egypt. And Lord, like Moses, we have a lot of questions, we have a lot of excuses, and you are calling us just as you called him to go. That you were the great I am, you were the one who still turns slavery and death into freedom and new life. Help us like Moses to intervene, to have mercy and justice for those who were in need. Bring to us burning bushes of the reminder of your presence. And help us to know that you were God and that all the myths and the idols of this world don't stand a chance. God, will you topple the pharaohs of this world? Take us by the long road if we need to. Soften our hearts. Take away our blame. Remove our fears. And for anybody here who feels that their back is against the wall, fight for them. Teach us to be still. Give us a story, a song, and a meal to be reminded of our salvation. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.